Hello and welcome to Political World, the discussion program that takes a look at the politics of places and systems around the world. I'm Sam. And I'm Sam. And this week, South Africa. We'll first look at the country broadly, then its political history of colonisation and white minority rule, and finally the situation today with its new president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and what this means for the election next year. So, <clears throat> shall we begin with where it is, Sam? Yeah, as the name suggests, bottom of Africa. Yeah, surrounded by Namibia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique to the north, Lesotho inside, Swaziland a little bit to the right. Uh, and what about the religions in the region? Um, I mean, mostly Christian of varying denominations. Um, traditionally, the Dutch settlers were part of the Dutch United Reformed Church. They were um, Calvinists, weren't they? Yeah, um, which is less of a thing now as the white population's declined. Um, but there's also substantial populations of Hindus, Muslims. Um, it's quite a diverse country. Um, and the economy, the GDP per capita PPP is $13,000, um, uh, but that hides like great inequality, doesn't it? It does. It also has, by some measures, the world's highest Gini coefficient. It's um, 63, isn't it? Yeah, um, which generally it's sort of vying with Chile right at the top. Um, yeah, maybe... I mean, th that is uh, for countries we have data for, because Equatorial Guinea is almost certainly top, but yeah, yeah. Um, of, of rated countries. Yeah, one of the strange things about South Africa is it usually comes up quite badly in indicators, partly because they have much more efficient data collection than other developing countries. Um, so again, crime statistics is another one. South Africa has very high crime statistically, but it's difficult to compare that compared to some other African countries, for example because of the statistical imbalance, um, but, but generally high inequality. And th this inequality is uh, very racially based, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a legacy of, of the apartheid system, which was which was run um, back in from sort of 1948 to 1994, um, but is still very much correlates to race. Um, it, it's a combination of structural unemployment uh, of blacks because of lower education and stuff like that, as well as the vast uh, ownership of wealth by the whites. Is it something like 70% of land is owned by the whites, even though they only make up 9% of the population? Yeah, and I think more specifically, um, business is generally still very much white-dominated. Um, most of the large South African corporations are run by white interests. Um, and since the end of apartheid, there's been some advancement of blacks in, in business, but generally it remains very white dominated and there's few sort of black owned conglomerates competing with those at the moment, which creates quite a concentrated economy amongst one ethnic group. Um, and the population is 57 million. Um, it's, a, it's about 80% black, 9% mixed race, uh, about 9% white and about 3% Asian. Yeah. Um, generally, mixed race people, sometimes known as coloured in South Africa, are concentrated in, in the Cape, um, in Cape Town, which is sort of the most ethnically diverse area of the country, give or take. And, and what are the main language uh, of South Africa? Well, English is the main language. Um, but there are 11 official languages, right? Yeah. Um, so English is the language of business, but then there's indigenous languages like Zulu, Soto, um, Swana and others. And also um, Afrikaans. And Afrikaans. Which, which is a derivative of Dutch. It is. Um, but Afrikaans is a very protective of their language. If you mm -hmm. call it Dutch, then <laughs> God help you. Well, it's a combination uh, of other uh, languages as well. And then the capital, it has three capitals, it does. doesn't it? Uh, which makes it a rarity. Fun fact for the trivia r yeah. round at the pub. 
uh, Pretoria, Bloemfontein, and Cape Town. Yeah. Although Johannesburg is the biggest city. And also has the constitutional court, but isn't a capital, which doesn't make very much sense. Um, but that's a structural oddity. Um, and who's in charge? So Cyril Ramaphosa has been the president since the beginning of this year, um, head of the African National Congress, the ANC, who've been in power since 1994, um, ANC being the party of Mandela um, from, from the apartheid struggle. Yeah, he's been the president since 2018, uh, since the beginning of 2018, replacing Jacob Zuma, who you may have heard of as a somewhat notorious figure. And the, the president is indirectly elected by the National Assembly, um, which is elected on a party PR list, right? Yeah. Um, so power in South Africa isn't on a federal basis, but it is quite heavily concentrated in the provinces, which make up the country of which there's nine. Um, so the parliament sort of reflects that to an extent. It reflects its history initially as the Union of South Africa from 1910, um, which obviously has now expanded into something slightly different. And the the parliament is down in Cape Town and the presidency is based in... Pretoria. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, well then let's discuss the history and how the apartheid state came about. So I suppose we, we always find ourselves beginning in these kind of discussions with colonisation. Yeah, so uh, Vasco da Gama circumnavigates the Cape of Good Hope in, I think, 1453, um, which, but obviously South Africa at that time was inhabited also by most notably the Zulu nation um, of the South were, African... It was San and Bantu people Yeah, were the main groups. Of the African sort of civilizations. Um, but yeah, the Dutch sort of turn up, the Dutch East India Company, obviously the Cape of Good Hope being a key transit route towards their possessions in the East Indies, nowadays Indonesia. Um, but a lot of Dutch sort of land um, and decide to use the Cape as a staging post. To provide food for the ships navigating. Yeah, exactly, because also they found that the Cape has a Mediterranean climate, which is ideal for farming and that kind of thing, so and it was a very was handy stop This was in 1652, yeah. and it was meant as a sort of trading post, uh, but it uh, gradually the, the people, the Dutch East India Company put their got a bit out of hand, didn't they? Yeah, things sort of um, began to <clears throat> to move. Um, additionally, you had the influence of Calvinist religion, mm -hmm. which gave a sort of religious seal to it. Um, missionaries obviously being one of the key ways of colonisation generally in Africa. So it wasn't so much of a problem once when they stayed in the small plot in the Cape, but once they started expanding out, they started meeting with the San people and other groups, um, and they started bringing slaves from the East Indies as well. Yeah. Um, at a time, it did become a little bit of a post on the in the slave trade, or not as much as mm. as elsewhere in Africa. And um, they started to enslave locals as well, eventually. Yeah, um, and the Netherlands, as their sort of global power progressively waned, eventually sort of split off from from the people in the Cape, um, mm. who then became the Afrikaners. And that they had they had this very strong belief among particularly some of the leaders that. The, this was God's land that had been given to them, you know, this this sort of evangelical Calvinism. Yeah. Um, and this is what made them believe they could do what they liked with the land and take it. Yeah, it's an unfortunate case of sort of Christian-inspired conquest, um, which, I mean, to some extent, obviously parts of South Africa were uninhabited at the time, um, which is why the land issue remains so contentious. But yeah, there was undoubtedly a lot of sort of forcible removal of the sand people in particular. Um, but then obviously the British show up and things take a more complicated turn. 
Yeah, so that happens in 1806, right? Mm -hmm. And the British want to make it part of their empire. Yeah, again, for the strategic value uh, in a time before the Suez Canal existed. It was a key staging post on the way to India. Um, But obviously the British and the Dutch have their differences, um, language most notably, but also generally... Um, and so the the Dutch are far more pro-slavery, particularly as the British Empire abolished it. Yeah, um, and there was a general imposition of sort of the British imperial system, which the Afrikaners by this point as quite an independent group. They, they, had, they started calling of. themselves Afrikaners, not Dutch. Exactly, they have their own language, they have their own identity. Um, in this sense, yeah. So what you get eventually is the the Afrikaners decide to move inland. Um, what's nowadays so known as the Great, Great Trek. Trek. Yeah. yeah. Um, eventually moving sort of onto the veld, so away from the coast and into the high the high inner part of South Africa, and set up what became known as the Orange Free State. There's two states they set up. One is the Orange Free State and one's the Transvaal, right? Yeah, the Orange Free State being the first one, um, mm. obviously named after the House of Orange, the Dutch royal family. Um, but yeah, so what you get then is a separate sort of running of South Africa in terms of the Cape Colony is very much British controlled and then you have these inner sort of um, countries yeah Africana countries plus you've then got the Zulu Kingdom in the sort of um, southeast in mm. KwaZulu um, so it all gets quite complicated around this time and the, the 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 states were very much established and accepted by about 1852 right the the Africana states yeah um, I mean accepted is, is probably the right word because the British were always somewhat Miffed at the existence of these colonies, particularly as moving further into the late nineteenth century, you get the beginnings of the ideas of Cecil Rhodes and so on, and connecting up the African colonies as part of the scramble for Africa. But yeah, um, they exist and to some extent coexist, um, but obviously with horrendous conditions within them for the African native population. Well, there's a difference in opinion. In sort of, so the British are not necessarily racial discriminants they uh, believe their discrimination is based on education and wealth um so although so actually blacks if they get a university education and wealth in the cape colony can vote whereas i mean that's still effectively white rule but it's by it's not quite so explicitly based on race yeah but it's a great colonial myth where Mm. you know in theory anyone could assimilate to assimilate to become a sort of you know, European person, but in practice, because there was very little rural education um, and generally education focused on blacks, of course, barely ever happened. Um, but in theory, the Cape Colony was somewhat more liberal, but that's not really saying very much. Um, that, that's, it's still that led to very it's still differences today in it being a more cosmopolitan area. Than yeah, the rest absolutely. Of um, particularly as at this time as well, a lot of migrants were brought over from India to build railways um, and they were generally treated somewhat better than the native population. Mm-hmm. So going on from this, by the end of the 19th century, we we have the Boer Wars, right? Yeah. Um, what what sparks those off? I mean, as, as, as far as, as anyone can tell, the British essentially get fed up of, of the Africana states existing within South Africa, particularly as at this time Britain now controls Zambia and Zimbabwe to the north, or the Rhodesias as they were called at the time, and it's very much cemented its control of Southern Africa. So these two Africana states sort of existing are somewhat frustrating for the British. So it's sort of a move towards cementing their control there. Um, somewhat the British try and claim it's about indigenous rights and so on, but really it's a, it's a case of control to secure railway lines 
moving further north and therefore to secure the British sphere of influence in southern Africa. They tried to unify all the states in southern Africa into one yeah. state. I yeah. Mean, uh, that, those of the, the Boer Republics and of the Cape. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the Zulu Kingdom sort of separately as well. Mm. Um, well, because also you've got, uh, over this the preceding period, both the British and the the Boers have been expanding out their territory to take over land of indigenous people. Yeah. So m- by this point, most of the land is then controlled by these uh, small groups. Yeah. Um, but the key difference is the Boers are quite sort of rurally based. Um, the economy is very much based on farming. Mm. By comparison, the British have obviously the might of the empire behind them. Um, but the Boer War in some ways is quite a sort of guerrilla-focused war in that the Boers fought quite a sort of rural-based war, which the British weren't particularly suited to. The whole thing becomes a complete quagmire, basically. Um, so the British lose the first one, but yeah, win the second one. But win the second one, but at a huge cost. Um, and they, they start, yeah, they start getting in, uh, indigenous people involved, conscripting them. Yeah. and there's the first use of concentration camps by the British uh, to control Boers and stop them yeah. moving around. It has it has a huge sort of psychological effect on the Boers because it's the first time I think that they realise, and this becomes a sort of foundational tenet of apartheid that they have nowhere else to go. Um, now that they're not really Dutch, they're very much sort of an Af- Africans themselves. So it's at this point where they start being locked up in concentration camps and so on that it creates a survivalist mentality, um, which eventually translates into the apartheid system as time goes on. So what happens after the Second World War and the British have won? Uh, So eventually South Africa is unified into the Union of South Africa, formed of four provinces. Um, In 1909? Yeah, officially in 1910. so you've got the Cape Colony, the ex-British colony. You've then got the two Afrikaner states, uh, the Free State and the Transvaal. And then you've got Natal, which is the former Zulu Kingdom. So it's a unified dominion of the British Empire, a new term that comes into use, which basically means it's part of the British Empire and has the Queen, but is also run independently. Yeah, and th- um, this kind of independence is quite important because um, you, you begin to have elections. and Yeah, so Paul Kruger is the, pers- the first... Yeah. Prime Minister. Um, but essentially, being independent puts it on the same standing as Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, mm-hmm. um, which again creates a kind of psyche about where South Africa is going as a nation, because essentially it creates a South African nation, and Paul Kruger makes it his, his sort of mission to create a South African nation. Um, I suppose it's important to note that it's at this time the British decide not to uh, unite uh, Basutuland, now Lesotho, or Swahili land now Eswatini yeah. into South Africa so because they, they remain separate and they remain separate to this day because the key thing with those is they're protectorates rather than colonies per se um, same with Botswana um, to the north which again at the time was very much has, was debated about including it in the union but chose not to so yeah so you end up with these slightly anomalous kingdoms um, which ultimately remain separate um, but essentially what you get is the beginnings of, of a quite racist state. Um, so the, the Native Land Act of 1913 sets aside 80% of the land primarily for whites, right? Yeah. And it, it's it's all about a unifying white narrative at the, in the first place with the South African National... Uh, the South African Party coming to power. And it, it's about Boers and British coming together as one white people of South Africa, right? Yeah, exactly. Um but as time goes on, it begins to become somewhat contentious. And a lot of this comes down to sort of, A, the competition between the white groups in terms of the Boers have a deep resentment of the English. The English, again, sort of think 
the boars are slightly ridiculous. Um, so it comes down to this resentment, but also then secondly, there's then a bigger dispute around whether to go down a segregationist model, as in the American South, in terms of dealing with the native population, or whether to go down this apartheid idea, which sort of emerges in the 1930s. So there's a breakaway group specifically um, advocating for Boer uh, rights, and that's the National Party. Um, and they explicitly represent Boer interests. Um, and they first come to power in 1924, um, and the, you have policies like they allow white women to vote because they think that that will... Not because they're up for they're big supporters of women, but because they think that will reduce the the value of coloured votes in the Cape. Yeah, I think the key thing to note about the National Party is not only are they incredibly racist, they're also really socially conservative. Um, So the National Party is inspired by Calvinism and remains so throughout the time it's relevant in South African politics. And so the big big change, the big turning point is 1948, where they come to power uh, in a majority government for the first time, and they remain in power... Uh, until 1994 right yeah because the second world war had become really contentious because south africa basically joins the war jan splits the leader says we're going to join the british and fight against the germans the national party are quite against this um and generally fight a sort of we don't want to be part of this why is it our war type thing um this sensitive is into resentment so in 1948 they win under df milan on an apartheid basis whereas the united party who they'd been running against proposed segregation so actually the united party aren't very liberal either but apartheid is genuine separation and the establishment of afrikaans is the sort of preeminent language in south africa it's as much focused at whites as it is on racial division fun fact they won that election uh, not only because of first past the post they didn't actually win uh, the majority of votes in the country. They only won the majority of seats because the Afrikaners uh, were in the rural areas and so their seats had fewer people per seat. Indeed. And so the Boers were able to uh, win more seats. Um, but so- then they managed to amass support, continue to gerrymander, and by the 1970s, the National Party are quite dominant amongst all whites as a group. So, um, so what is apartheid? What are the changes in policy that they bring about? So apartheid in Afrikaans literally means separation. Um, apartheid, officially known as the legal system of political, economic and social separation of races, intended to maintain and extend political and economic control of South Africa by the white minority. In practice, the white minority means the Afrikaners. Um, so Afrikaans is given protected status as a language in, in South Africa. But more importantly, apartheid develops into the wholesale separation of the white minority from um, everyone else, specifically blacks, but also Indians and mixed race people. This gradually morphs into a thing where South Africa is in theory going to be divided into homelands, homelands for the um, black majority, homelands being totally irrelevant to where people actually came from and on the worst land possible. So actually, the eventual aim of apartheid is actually to split up the South African nations. You've got the white nation and the other nations. This is all theory. Um, In practice, it just means the wholesale separation and systematic control of black people and their oppression through putting them in townships to serve the white area cities. But actually, the most important part of apartheid is, is the Group Areas Act, which specifically designates each area for a different racial group. Um, the famous things about benches where it says, you know, whites only or blacks only is actually fairly irrelevant, um, otherwise known as petty apartheid, um, and is the first thing to go when the apartheid state comes under pressure. But 
the systematic movement of people is huge um, and the extent of oppression within the state. And the church is very much supportive of it as well. Um, so it becomes this huge, monstrous system by the early 60s. The National Party leadership that come to power in 1948 are heavily influenced by the ideas of the Nazis, aren't they? Because some of the leadership had won scholarships to study in Germany in the 1930s and had seen Hitler speak and become influenced by these ideas and combine them with their Calvinist ideas. Yeah, this is a generally in a time of really pop, of, of high popularity for sort of racially inspired theories and movements and that kind of thing. Um, so it kind of fits with the times that racial engineering would be a thing that they just decide to try. Um, but it, there's quite a complicated ideology behind it. I think it's quite difficult to understand, but it fundamentally comes down to the survivalist mentality and the idea they need a state because they don't have one elsewhere. So what happens in the years of apartheid that are important for the political development of uh, South Africa? What is the role of the resistance, uh, the African National Congress and other groups? I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think... 1960, Harold Macmillan goes to Cape Town and does his famous Winds of Change speech, which is basically a speech saying, you can't continue with apartheid and expect British support. Get real, look at what's happening elsewhere on the co- on the continent. South Africa becomes a republic shortly afterwards, um, so severs its ties with Britain, which does very much mean, symbolically, you know, we're going it alone. At the same time, in 1960, you have the Sharpeville Massacre, which is the first sort of black resistance movement or flashpoint for black resistance to apartheid. Um, so after the Sharpeville massacre in the 1960s, South Africa looks fairly secure because it's got the Portuguese-controlled colonies, which are still Portuguese until 1975. Uh, it's also got Rhodesia, which declares unilateral independence in 1965, which isn't officially supported by South Africa, but in practice is helpful to them. So you get the kind of continued economic development, but what really happens in the big flashpoint is in 1976, the Soweto um, uprising, which is the first big uprising against the apartheid state. And that's really, from then onwards, is kind of a general downward trend in terms of the apartheid state begins to lose control of the townships, begins to lose control of the homeland policies. Um, and at the same time, international isolation massively increases in the 1980s as a very successful sanctions campaign. They lose Rhodesia. Um, they're, they're reliant on Israel, isn't it, for like arms and stuff because of the UN embargo and stuff like that. Yeah, they also develop a huge domestic arms industry as well, um, and their own nuclear weapons program, of which its purpose was somewhat pointless. Um, but yeah, um, they become quite successful in some ways as an isolationist state. For example, they convert coal into oil to circumvent the embargo, but clearly this is unsustainable in the long run, and by the late 80s proves to be so. Mm. Okay, so what is the role of the African National Congress then? So the ANC um, initially is quite a violent group in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, many Western governments call it a terrorist organisation. Um, Nelson Mandela sort of emerges as the leader and then gets locked up for a period of getting on for 30 years. Um, the ANC then sort of disappear, but after the Soweto massacre, um, increase in, in support. But actually in the 1980s, other movements are sort of more preeminent in the struggle. It's only really in the late 80s that the ANC are able to regain the initiative as other movements sort of collapse under the weight of the apartheid state's um, continued repression. Um, but by 1990, they're the clear people you have to negotiate with, and Nelson Mandela has sort of superstar status in a way, um, which gives him very good negotiating credit. Is, is this because they've been on Robin Island and were locked up on Robin Island for so long? Mm-hmm. It gives them, uh, they become a banner of the oppression. It's totemic that he's on Robin Island, um, but I think at the same time, 
really the ANC are successful in in getting international support from from um, the communist states particularly, but also elsewhere towards the end. But also in the townships, the ANC offer the most convincing message to the black population, which allows them to get the power to do resistance, which is what ultimately drives the apartheid state towards calling it a day. So, in 1991, the apartheid laws are repealed, right? Yeah, so F.W. de Klerk becomes president in late 1989. Um, He's considered a conservative in the National Party. Um, but then in 1990, frees Mandela and decides to open negotiations. The National Party at this point are actually in quite a strong position in terms of their negotiations, but it all the they basically get outplayed by the ANC. So the apartheid laws get repealed in 1991, 1993. There's a referendum um, where the apartheid law repeal is confirmed, and then in 1994, the first. Uh, multiracial democratic elections are held in which Mandela comes to power and whites don't get any special status at all which is a huge victory for the ANC and so, so in 1994 this leads to the first free and fair election in South Africa yeah Mandela becomes president the ANC winner getting on for 75% of the votes the National Party comes second to begin with uh, Mandela puts to clerks as vice president um, to form a sort of government and national unity um this gives rise to nation-building ideas like the 1995 Rugby World Cup, which was used by Mandela as a sort of, not propaganda at all, but a good way to unify the nation. Um, but the differences emerge, and Mandela realises he doesn't need the National Party to be able to run the government. Uh, whites don't have any codified legal status that makes them any different to anyone else anymore. So eventually the National Party quits in 1996, um, and then ever since then it's been unbroken ANC rule in South Africa. So how does Mandela rule when he comes to power? What 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 kind of policies are we seeing? Yeah, so Mandela, if anything, Mandela comes to power more as a figurehead, as in the actual policy is being done by others like Cyril Ramaphosa, who's quite important at a time, like Fabu Mbeki. Basically, Mandela espouses the idea of a rainbow nation, all races can be together, tries to calm the extremely high rates of violence which have been seen in the previous years. Markets of Africa is open for business to try and overcome the impact of sanctions. All of this is reasonably successful. Also introduces a constitution which is generally considered to be the world's most liberal. Um, and he, important, I suppose important in terms of our consideration and uh, comparing to like Zimbabwe last week, he doesn't try to make wide-scale land reform or anything immediately. No. So, so land reform only happens on the willing buyer, willing seller principle, which means no one's forced to do it. Um, some say that this is this ultimately stores up problems because it means that white corporates remain in control. But arguably this was a deal that had to be cut to allow the apartheid state to sort of shift off into the into the history books. So Mandela generally has Mandela has a sort of heroic status in South Africa um, and is generally considered to have been done a re- reasonably good job in the presidency. Um, stands down in 1999 um, and then that's really where the real action starts in terms of creating the a new modern state. Before we move on, I think it's important to just briefly discuss the Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, um, so obviously the apartheid state was incredibly violent and had huge amounts of systematic human rights abuses associated with it. So Mandela creates the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, primarily as a way of getting people to talk, finding out what actually happened in the apartheid state, but largely doing this on a sort of basis of, if you confess, then you will be free. Um, it's quite controversial now, but at the time, 
solicited some significant testimony and got closure for a lot of people. Um, but generally the healing process was considered to be fairly well managed, but there's still deep divides as a result. Its proposals included things like... Uh, the the Freedom Park. The Freedom Park, uh, the, the park in Pretoria and stuff like that. Yeah, I think a lot of people... I think what Mandela's good at is the psychological reconciliation. What he's not good at is the economic re- reconciliation. And that becomes a problem now. But at the time, probably it was important to calm down the fact that South Africa almost entered a period of civil war in 1993. So on balance, he probably does a reasonably good job. Um, and certainly gave South Africa international star power, if nothing else. Okay, so what about his successor, Tabo Mabeki? Yeah, so... Mbeki presides over a period of strong economic growth driven by commodities, um, mostly metals, um, which South Africa has a large export base for. Um, The problem at this point is that HIV AIDS becomes a huge problem in South Africa, um, and Mbeki is somewhat ambivalent on what HIV AIDS is and whether it exists, which obviously is completely ridiculous, but means that the country is incredibly slow to get to grips with the crisis. This in turn generally coincides with a period of extremely high youth unemployment, which now persists. So I think what Mbeki does is continues Mandela's sort of legacy, but probably doesn't put in the structural reforms that are really needed at the time. Economy grows well, which is good, but then the 2008 crash comes, commodity prices absolutely collapse, and then the economy is completely in the lurch. And Mbeki then is sort of resigns in 2008 amid various scandals. Um, but, but importantly, before he resigns, he, he kicked someone out of his cabinet uh, for a corruption scandal. He did. Um, uh, Mr. Zuma. Mr. Zuma, um, his first dice with corruption death, um, occurs shortly before Mbeki, um goes. But he somehow sort of um, gets off with it. Yeah, um, so, so Zuma is undergoing corruption scandal and there are rape charges against him. But yet, he still manages to be elected to the president of the ANC yeah. uh, as the head of the party. Which I think is, again, the first sign that's, that the ANC is beginning to morph into one of the traditional... into a sort of party structure which you see elsewhere in Africa, which is heavily based on patronage as opposed to actual policy. At this point, Mandela's sort of out of the picture as well, which makes things harder. Um, but Zou- Ma- Mandela never spoke out against his successors. Did he, he? he didn't. But also Mandela by this point is physically ailing. Um, so I think what you get with Zuma is he wins basically because of patronage, partly because he's able to claim Zulu heritage, which gives him a large voting base in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, but also Mbeki's credibility by this point was shredded. Well, um, he'd come to the end of his time anyway, really. Yeah, he had. Because um, they wanted the leader of the ANC also to be the lead, the president, and Mbeki couldn't stand to be president of the country again. Uh, yeah. So, but I think what you get with Mbeki is a failure to really reform the ANC and a failure to reform the country when the sun's shining, to use to use the metaphor. And at that point, I think it, it becomes you store up problems, which then in the economic crisis become really thrown out for all to see. So, unemployment is very high in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, there are economic problems with the rand. Uh, commodities are not being bought. And Jacob Zuma is elected to the presidency of the ANC in 2008. And yep. then as president of the country 
when the ANC wins an election in 2009. And the ANC can't really not lose an election because it's so powerful, it's so dominant, and most of the black population and some of the white population vote for it heavily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, also the ANC just have the legacy of the fact they led the fight against apartheid, which just gives them a huge amount of credibility straight away. But Zuma comes to power and initially everything seems to go okay. But you then get increasingly swirling charges around his misuse of state funds. Um, the Naklanda complex. Um, he built himself a mansion. Yeah, essentially he claims security upgrades to massively upgrade his homestead in KwaZulu-Natal um, with such anti-burglar features as swimming pools and garages for his cars. Um, and like, this isn't like the presidential palace like in Turkey where Erdogan is just... This is his own personal home that he upgrades. Yes. Yeah, there's no motivation for this at all other than pure corruption and it becomes a big scandal but he seems to somehow overcome it and win another election and then there are more scandals there are um do you then, want to tell us about his friends the guptas yeah so so guptas which then becomes the state capture scandal the guptas are two businessmen in south africa but then basically what happens is the guptas get incredibly close to zuma and zuma starts dishing out contracts based on whether the Guptas were involved, and then he starts dishing out ministries based on who the Guptas like, and eventually the entire state is completely ransacked. Most of the parastatals, like the railways and the airlines, have huge black holes in their accounts. It's really unclear where this money's going, but some of it clearly ends up with the Guptas and Jacob Zuma's sort of other acolytes. Result is public services massively crumbling, the deficit hugely increases, economic growth stagnant. Um, and massive political unrest, um, which culminates eventually in Zuma being kicked out. Where is the opposition in all this time? Because you'd expect in a democratic system with this good constitution that Mandela helped bring into place, there'd be means to check uh, on such uh, corruption, means to check on the party and prevent them doing this. The problem with with the ANC is they have almost a two-thirds majority in parliament, which makes doing anything difficult to begin with. The DA, the main opposition... So so how did the Democratic Alliance emerge? Well, the Democratic Alliance emerged in the early 2000s um, as the previous Democratic Party, which had existed for way, way before, um, as a sort of liberal opposition to apartheid. Um, But the Democratic Alliance were always associated as being the party of the whites in South Africa um, since the decline of the National Party and a lot of their leaders sort of move into the Democratic Alliance. And the wealthy particularly as well. Yeah. So it's generally not considered to be a party for people in the townships who obviously form the vast majority of voters. Um, fairly irrelevant until fairly recently um, when they elect a new leader. Um, um, so the DA elects Musi Mananetti, right? Yeah, who is generally considered to be quite a sort of progressive. He's, he's quite um, charismatic and this all changes. And it makes a difference because he's black. It in does. terms of perspectives, uh, the perspective people have of the DA. It, it opens them up more to other people, I'd say. Um, and I think shows a certain element of progressivism that perhaps wasn't there before. I think, though, what's important is the DA then also massively ramp up their campaigning based on the ANC is Zuma and Zuma is rubbish. Stop thinking the ANC are the party that stopped apartheid. This is quite a successful strategy in terms of winning them urban votes, particularly um, amongst the sort of emergent new black middle class. Um, result is that they take a lot of the cities um, in recent provincial elections. Um, 
again, the scrutiny in Parliament also increases, but the Parliament is very, very hard to get scrutiny through because of the huge majority of the ANC. So, yeah. Um, and they're in coalitions in a lot of the cities with another opposition group, which emerges out of the Zuma era. So, do you want to tell us about the Economic yeah. Freedom Fighters? So the Economic Freedom Fighters, which are run by Julius Malema, who used to be the head of the ANC Youth until he fell out with Zuma. This is in 2013, these, right? Yeah, these guys are basically hardcore, not communists, but basically r- revolutionary. Um, they believe in the radical redistribution of land in South Africa. Yeah, exactly. And property. Yeah. Um, and they're notable for their hard hats and boiler suits. Yeah, so they run as a kind of paramilitary-style organisation, although renounce violence, but basically all of them wear hard hats and boiler suits in solidarity with miners and all the rest of it. Um, but Malema is incredibly charismatic and a very wily politician. Basically, what these guys do is hoover up a lot of urban black young votes, um, which gives them quite a sizable support base. Um, yeah, it's over forty nine percent of their voters or their supporters are under twenty five or something like yeah. that. Yeah. It's like huge support among young black voters. But the key thing is that their influence is massively bigger than it should be because Malema is so good at playing politics that he's able to harvest all the media time. So they're incredibly disruptive in Parliament as a way of sort of monopolising Yeah, you you and I attended a sitting, one of uh, Zuma's last sittings, uh, President's Questions, and we didn't hear Zuma speak at all, really, did we? Because Malema was just kept buzzing in with a constitutional appeal, like... (laughs) A technicality in which to stop him speaking. Yeah, it's amazing to see it done. Um, and it is very successful because he just monopolises all the airtime. It's not um, very good for accountability and democracy, is it? No, and that's the thing, is the EFF are increasingly sort of embroiled themselves in corruption allegations. It's probably likely that they've got quite a, a low sort of ceiling of support and they're probably already hitting it. Um, now that the ANC have reformed themselves slightly under Ramaphosa, it'll be interesting to see how well they do it in okay, the next well, elections. Then, given that, let's move on to discussing current situation in South Africa. So, Zuma falls from grace. He does, quite rapidly. Um, but, but these corruption scandals have been going on for years. Why, why does he fall from grace uh, in 2018? I mean, I think he falls from grace because the ANC realised that Zuma has become massive electoral liability, which the DA are increasingly gaining support, the EFF are hitting them from the left. So I think everyone in the ANC realises, you know, the game's up. Um, Ramaphosa wins the ANC election incredibly narrowly, actually, against Zuma's ex-wife. Who Zuma wanted to win because he thought that she would protect him from prosecution. Yeah, and a lot of Zuma loyalists win some of the key seats as well on the ANC executive. But Ramaphosa becomes the president eventually on a sort of nation-building, healing-type narrative. How believable this is remains debatable. Um, The idea is basically to kickstart economic growth, um, which has been dubious at best. Um, South Africa facing many of the problems of other emerging economies, particularly in relation to the strong dollar. Um, Result is that Ramaphosa has come to power but has very high expectations about what he's going to do Um, and for the moment economic growth is really in the doldrums unemployment remains as high as ever and there's still rumblings of corruption around him as much as anyone else so it's difficult to see how well that's going to go Is he better than Zuma? Probably because I think Zuma was always a nakedly corrupt politician from the off Ramaphosa sort of 
A, is wealthy enough that he doesn't really need the wealth from politics because so, he moved out of politics. Yeah. Ram- to... Ramaphosa was a trade union leader who was in the rose in the early stages of the ANC and the new liberal uh, re- government. Um, but then because he didn't ascend to the higher echelons of power, he moved into business. He did. And through his connections in the ANC, did some favourable business contracts, right? He did, yeah. Um, but I think what this does is slightly immunises him from being as tempted by corruption. I think also he's probably just comes across as a better statesman than Zuma. On the other hand, he faces so much pressure from the left of the ANC to do something to sort of to deal with black discontent in the townships that he's been pushed into doing land reform, which I don't think he's particularly in favour of. Um, and this is creating further uncertainty for business in South Africa, which is making the economy harder and harder to grow. So the whole thing's a bit of a quagmire, really. Um, the next election, the ANC have been doing better in the polls. They'll probably win again. But then it's a case of how radical they want to go and how the global economy does in terms of how well the South African economy picks up. How, how do things look for uh, economic freedom fighters and the Democratic Alliance in terms of the election? So the DA have really lost momentum for two reasons. Firstly is because they had a huge... Well, not huge, but a, a sort of ongoing corruption slash internal political battle in Cape Town um, with the mayor of Cape Town, Patricia DeLille, um, who the DA wanted out of office, but the local DA didn't, and it all became a bit of a mess. Um, that's really tarnished their standings. Secondly, though, they've lost their main sort of source of um, something to... Um, Rile against. Yeah, because Zuma. Zuma's gone. Um, and if his ex-wife, also called Zuma, had yeah. been elected, then it would have probably still give them some momentum. Yeah, whereas the problem now is it's very hard for them to say, oh, the ANC, because Ramaphosa's in, and he says, oh, everything's totally different. So I think their prospects are uncertain, and no one can be quite sure. The EFF, again, with Ramaphosa moving to the left, it's hard to see. Um, Malema's beginning to get rumblings of corruption around him. So I think most realistic result for the next election, which is next year, is ANC will probably win on a similar basis to what they did the last time round. Well, thank you very much, Sam. All right, no problem. You've been listening to Political World, and if you enjoyed the programme, please give us a good rating. It helps others find it. The music is from Blue Dot Sessions and is licensed under Creative Commons. Please join us next time on Political World. <laughs>